Hello and welcome to Line by Line. It's very simple, really. Two guests look at three pieces of writing and we talk about what's going on in them. The guests don't get told where the passages come from, but we're not trying to catch them out. It's just to start off, at least, without a reputation leaning on the scales. And if they haven't already guessed where these extracts are, I suspect they will know, uh, I will reveal a little way in. With us today are the novelist Jill Hornby, author of The Hive, and all together now, kindly taking time out today from working on the follow-up to her best-selling novel, Miss Austin, which is about Jane's sister, Cassandra. And joining her is David Bedeal, comedian, best-selling author of children's books, and now a successful polemicist, too. His latest book is Jews Don't Count. I'm not sure how you characterise that title exactly. Is it sarcastic, ironic, sardonic? antithetical anyway the point um, is it's exactly the opposite it characterizes it characterizes an attitude it's ironic i guess because it characterizes an attitude that the book then deconstructs it's not yeah. uh, a manual it's not something that should be it, taken at face value exactly is it's the exact opposite of what you think anyway welcome to both of you before we get started just a little bit of context for this first passage and a confession to listeners as i've taken out some proper names here that would give the game away immediately but otherwise this passage is unchanged and it's an account of a moment of clarity during a honeymoon in Italy. Her husband's way of commenting on the strangely impressive objects around them had begun to affect her with a sort of mental shiver. He had perhaps the best intention of acquitting himself worthily but only of acquitting himself. What was fresh to her mind was worn out to his. And such capacity of thought and feeling as had ever been stimulated in him by the general life of mankind had long shrunk to a sort of dried preparation, a lifeless embalmment of knowledge. When he said, Does this interest you? Shall we stay a little longer? I'm ready to stay if you wish it. It seemed to her as if going or staying were alike dreary. Or, Should you like to go to the Farnesina? It contains celebrated frescoes designed or painted by Raphael, which most persons think it worthwhile to visit. But do you care about them? Was always her question. They are, I believe, highly esteemed. Some of them represent the fable of Cupid and Psyche, which is probably the romantic invention of a literary period and cannot, I think, be reckoned as a genuine mythical product. But if you like these wall paintings, we can easily drive thither. And you will then, I think, have seen the chief works of Raphael, any of which it were a pity to omit in a visit to Rome. He is the painter who has been held to combine the most complete grace of form with sublimity of expression. Such, at least, I have gathered to be the opinion of the cognoscenti. This kind of answer, given in a measured official tone, as of a clergyman reading according to the rubric, did not help to justify the glories of the Eternal City, or to give her the hope that, if she knew more about them, the world would be joyously illuminated for her. There is hardly any contact more depressing to a young, ardent creature than that of a mind in which years full of knowledge seem to have issued in a blank absence of interest or sympathy. OK, so we've heard that. Uh, Jill, do you want to go first on this passage? And if you recognise it, okay. uh, don't I say do. yet. Um, um, I thought you probably would. Well, I, I just... I think this is absolutely brilliant, just because if you just ran it on its own, it would work as a short story. This couple and their um and the difference between them 
and this place they're in and her dawning realisation or her mental shiver, as she calls it. And it's so moving. And the way so much is packed into it of the difference between them and the knowledge that it's a honeymoon, that these differences are so fundamental and this poor woman has a lifetime ahead of her of such things. The disappointment sort of screams out of every word. She's there sort of fresh and um, young and ardent and everything Every description of his suggests sort of death, you know. He's worn out, the dry preparation, he's a lifeless embalmment, he's shrunk, his measured official tone, the blank absence absence of interest or sympathy. It's, it's brilliantly it, heartbreaking. It's interesting. I was talking to my wife and she pointed out that the questions that he comes up with are, are all actually questions of some concern you know if you're on a honeymoon this is somebody who definitely appears to be at least trying to work out what his wife wants and trying to give it to her but that first paragraph means you can't possibly give him any quarter when those questions come in you only hear them as a failure and as a kind of moral failure too um david what do you think well first i think you've given something away both of you by calling it a honeymoon which i don't think is in the actual passage, is it? Uh, no, it's not in the past. I set it up as a bit of context. Uh, it, because I right. think that, I mean, the fact that it is happening on a honeymoon makes it particularly yeah, okay. poignant. Uh, I thought that was a clue uh, to... I also do know what this is from. So I think I sometimes think with close reading, it's not a bad idea to sort of dive into the grammar a bit. I think grammar can often be revealing. I'm not a grammarian, but I think it tells you something about the characters here, which is specifically the husband's use of the passive voice, uh, as in he is the painter who has been held, uh, rather than Raphael combines the complete grace of form with sublimative expression. He uses it all the time, Raphael, which most persons think it is worthwhile to visit. He outsources his own opinion of the art to some general consensus uh, rather than having his own opinion. And that is actually specifically what makes her, the woman feel trapped because uh, he, she says all the time, you know, but do you care about them? Uh, which is a sort of individual relationship that she wants to have, an individual energy as opposed to this kind of dusty academic idea of general valuation that he just has to conform to. Uh, and that suggests that he is impassive and she is active, I think. And that's a sort of trying to use the grammar to say something about the emotional uh, scenario, situation in the scene. And it sort of comes together, I think, with the word ardent, which Jill pointed out. It's a very sort of loaded word. And if you didn't know they were on honeymoon, that's the word that I think suggests passion and emotional engagement and something burning and glowing and direct within her, as opposed to his disengaged, passionless box-ticking approach to art and beauty. And it also suggests, I think, that she is one of the objects that he's doing that to, it's... one of the beautiful objects that he's doing I'm that very to. keen very on the word art. Sorry, Jim, it does a lot of heavy lifting in Victorian literature generally. And the novel I'm writing at the moment is set in 1805. And I have to sort of restrict myself, <laughs> my uses of ardent, because it it's so... So fabulous and so of the time, you know, it, it has so much in it, your ardent friendship. But his his um, his passive voice is also, is it not, uh, hiding the fact that he actually doesn't seem to have an opinion. His opinions are entirely received. He's just method. He's intellectual method and actually no thought. And um, it's stultifying. 
Yeah. Well, that's a killing moment, isn't it? He he's talking about Cupid and Psyche. So he's talking about these frescoes, which are of a romantic subject. He he briefly almost seems to come to an opinion. And then he kills it off with which at least I have gathered to be the opinion of Cognoscenti. So it, it's almost as though he's terrified to think. And what's think so sad is that what he's dismissing is romance. You know, he's dismissing love. Doesn't know about it. I mean, you know, does it exist? Does it not? Jill, there's a question whenever you get dialogue in a piece of writing. There's always a question about how it is pronounced aloud. And I think there is there a choice in that thing. She says, do you care about them? Do you think she stresses you or do you think she stresses care? I think care. I think care. I mean, all, all, all of the words could be stressed uh, in a different dramatisation of it. But I think it's do you care about them as opposed to do you have this intellectualising uh, attempt to fit in with whatever you think is the academic uh, consensus on it. Do you care? That cuts through it all. It's interesting, of course, you talk about it as a scene that's a dialogue scene. That's all she says. You know, he's very, very waffly and she says one thing. And it's actually very powerful in a way uh, because, you know, it, it is a vic- piece of Victorian writing. Mm. I think we can give that away. But she, well, it's Middlemarch. It's Georgia. Yeah, it's Dorothea and Corsabon on their honeymoon in, in Middlemarch in Rome. Uh, and it's interesting that from the point of view of George Eliot, uh, because I think George Eliot often took women who were given a trapped, low status situation, but gave them the energy to be the sort of higher status person in the book. You know, and that's sort of by itself. But do you care about them? Totally destroys, I think, Causabod's uh, sort of dusty intellectualizing of them one thing i think is interesting as well by the way is it's 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 listening to him the the point of view is dorothea's throughout it's just listening to him uh say these things and you know clearly be as jill said sort of not have any kind of improper emotional engagement with it until the end and then it does a very george Eliot thing which is george Eliot is a writer who i always think of as she she'll be with the character and then she'll zoom out of the characters and philosophize in general about the scene and that's what you get with there is hardly any contact more depressing to a young ardent creature suddenly it becomes a generality about this kind of gendered situation i like the line that comes immediately before that because i think it tells us something about dorothea and about why she's so angry none of um none of what he says you know it's all disappointing to her did not help to justify the glories of the eternal city or to give her the hope that if she knew more about them, the world would be joyously illuminated. And I think that's a little clue that Dorothea isn't feeling what she thinks she should be feeling. At that moment, these pictures don't sort of just automatically make her ardent. She wants somebody to help her do that. And of course, the tragedy is that Casorborn is the last man in the world who's capable of doing that. But it is, isn't the whole part of the background, now we can talk about the story generally, that she has not had the confidence to form her own opinions or to know how she is to react. And the reason she's plucked him out of the, um, out of the lineup is because she thinks he's the person to deliver it all to her. Um, and, th- and through, his, through this absence, this blankness that she now faces, she is going to develop as a person. Absolutely. Well, let's go on to the second extract, which is, um, as we 
usually do in these things. It's, it's themed. Um, you'll hear that. What are we signing up to when we speak of the beauty of this light, says Dr. Belsey, employing quoting fingers? What are these images really concerned with? Here, Katie sees her opportunity and begins the slow process of thinking about possibly opening her mouth and allowing sound to come from it. Her tongue is at her teeth. But it is the incredible-looking black girl, Victoria, who speaks. And as ever, she has a way of monopolising Dr. Belsey's attention, even when Katie is almost certain that what she is saying is not terribly interesting. It's a painting of its own interior, she says very slowly looking down at her desk and then up again in that stupid, flirty way she has. Its subject is painting itself. It's a painting about painting. I mean, that's the desiring force here. Dr. Belsey raps on his desk in an interested way, as if to say, now we're getting to it. OK, he says. Expand. But before Victoria can speak again, there is an interruption. Um, I don't understand how you're using painting there. I don't think you can simply just inscribe the history of painting, or even its logos, in that one word, painting. The professor seems interested in this point too. It is made by the young man with the t-shirt that says, being on one side and time on the other a young man Katie fears more than anybody else in this whole university, much more than she could ever fear any woman, even the beautiful black girl, because he is clearly the third most amazing person she has ever come across. His name is Mike. But you've already privileged the term, says the professor's daughter, whom Katie, who is not given easily to hatred, hates. You're already assuming the etching is merely debased painting, so there's your problematic right there. And now the class seems to escape Katie. It streams through her toes as the sea and sand when she stands at the edge of the ocean and dozily, stupidly allows the tide to draw out and the world to pull away from her so rapidly as to make her dizzy. So, uh, David, your turn to go first. I don't know whether you recognise this passage or not, um, but again, well, I'm gonna... uh, keep it back for the moment oh, if yeah. you do. I think I, do, I think I do recognise this passage, uh, and I'm going to say something vaguely grammatical again, more obviously grammatical than in the first place, which is just the repeated use of inverted commas in this, which you get very early on with you know him actually employing quoting fingers and beauty and light. And the reason I'm mentioning that is that um, it once again tells us that this is a space in which there's a self-consciousness around the appreciation of art, that uh, once again people aren't really responding directly to what painting and beauty and light is but then but within this sort of academic situation that these are being used to say something about the intellectual standing of the people talking about it um, and it's more extreme in a way in this and more ironic and more comic than in the first one uh, because really this is a sort of satire I think on how people talk about art and beauty in the academy in a, in a university space and the young woman, it's interesting in what, terms of what I was trying to say earlier about Dorothea, I think being quite powerful in the previous one, despite the, her being the one who's the sort of ingenue. I think the woman in this one is 
and that's part of um, what's going on, I think, is nervous and frightened and doesn't think that she can match the high intellectualism of all these people. And then the comedy, in a way, is how sort of straightforward and, in a way, kind of girly she is. Like She talks about the stupid, flirty way of the other student or Mike being the third most amazing person she's ever come across. I think that's comedy, that she, in this kind of mean girl's language, is being contrasted to the very high-flown self-conscious language of the yeah. academics or the One students. One of the things before I turn to it. you, Jill, probably for context, um, it's always difficult because we're taking these little, quite short passages out of context. And one of the contexts for this is that the girl, Katie, has talked about two paintings immediately before this passage. She's taking a fine art course at a New England university. And the pages immediately preceding this give her reaction to two paintings. She's actually rather good at it. She reacts in exactly the way that Dorothea wants Kasorvan to react, um, very immediately, very responsive to what is happening in the painting and, you know, the colours, the design and so on. So that's part of the context that you don't entirely get from this reading. Uh, Jill? No, you don't. You don't. But even though she doesn't say anything at all and doesn't put herself, you know, out in the room whatsoever, we know from her assessment of everybody in the room that she's pretty shrewd on everything. Um, she's got them all banged to rights, as far as one can tell. You know, we we hated the professor's daughter the minute she opened her mouth, and Katie, it turns out, also hates her. Um, and her, but but she has a lack of confidence, which is, obviously she has this lack of confidence that she didn't actually say anything. But she is almost certain that she doesn't like the flirty girl, and. Um, and so on. And then and then when that feeling of not being able to speak in a meeting, which I have had a million times in my life, is, is absolutely brilliantly dealt with. What I love about this is, is just as a piece of dialogue. I mean, as, as a writer, I would always put things in dialogue if I, you know, unless I simply can't, which probably doesn't make me a, a perfect novelist. But um, as a piece of dialogue, this is fantastic because everybody is speaking in their own voice here. They're all so distinguishable just from their tiny, tiny snippets of half sentences that that they are very different to each other and very well, different to Katie. And well, that's I think in that, that first passage where Dorothea says virtually nothing. Katie says nothing here. And yet we are entirely in her mind. I do think that the, I mean, you were talking about grammar, David, earlier. That sentence where he says, he catch, he, the, the writer catches the moment which Katie is about to speak. Here, Katie sees her opportunity and begins the slow process of thinking about possibly opening her mouth and allowing yeah. sounds to come. This is continuous deferral. She begins yeah. to think of saying something, but she doesn't even do that to begin to think about the possibility of opening a mouth and then allow yeah, and so her, to her tongue her tongue is at her teeth so there's an actual physical sort of description of the feeling in your mouth when you well, can't quite make that leap into speaking but i do think it is it's very well chosen tom because i do think that the idea of uh, all these other people talking about yes it's a painting about painting the sort of modern deconstructive you know self conscious meta way of talking about art is a modern version of that dry academic way of talking about it 
uh, that Corzabon does in the previous one. And similarly, and I didn't, I didn't remember. I did, I have read this. I think I do know what it is, but I didn't remember that she had done a, a very good direct analysis of two paintings previously. But that really plays into that because if she said something direct and emotional and responsive, and then next thing you know, there's a kind of sense in which you know, but you're meant to talk about them like this. I think that all adds to her sense of sort of humiliation that's that sort of underneath this, which leads to the dissolving, the dissolution, I think, at the end of the passage. It is funny as well, I think. Um, I love, Very funny. I love that sentence. It Dr. is funny. Dr. Belsey raps on his desk in an interesting way, as if to say, now we're getting to it, yeah. which completely sums up a certain yeah. kind of didactic, yeah. academic way of responding to something happening in a crowd right we'll find out whether you're right this is zadie smith on beauty of course now you can say yes i, I knew it all the time yes yeah, yeah. Thought so. <laughs> yeah. And it's interesting katie isn't the major character in this novel she's really not she's i mean dr belsey is the central oh, is character she not? It's a sort of I model read it. i'm already very worried about her putting too much trust in mike you know, she's got it. She's got him as third most amazing person. He shouldn't be anybody in the top 50 of anybody's most amazing people. And I, I'm already fearing for her fate. They're very good. They're very good. Those those two infelicities. They're very good. It's the incredible looking yeah. black girl. It's a terrible piece of writing that isn't. But of no, course, it's, it's not vernacular. It's her way of thinking about the world. And then the third most then, amazing yeah. person is also. Yeah, but that's what, what I mean. Is that it's I think the contrast between that very straightforward sort of teenage or just beyond teenage way of writing and thinking compared to the very, very overthought out self-conscious way that Dr. Belsey and the students who are doing well at speaking is really funny. What do you think of that last paragraph? And now the class escapes Katie. It streams through her toes as the sea and the sand when she stands at the edge of the ocean and dozily, stupidly allows the tide to draw out and the world pull away from her so rapidly as to make her dizzy. I, I really like it. I think it's a sort of resigning of sort of self away from all this that she, you know, it, it does relate, I think, to what you said earlier, which is in Dorothea's case, there's just a recognition of being trapped. In Katie's case, there's something similar, but her expression of it is a sort of complete dissolution of self to just be sort of atoms that don't have any ability to think like this. Also, it's a very suddenly, a very vividly physical metaphor after all of this abstraction yeah. and these, I mean, very desiccated abstractions. I loved it for its pure... Jill, I don't know whether you want well, to... Well, I just loved it for its pure familiarity. <laughs> I mean, you know, I know exactly what she means. Well, also, she does say dozily, stupidly. It's a yes. kind of anti-intellectual way yeah. of being. Let's move on before we run out of time. So let's listen to the final extract we're talking about today. Leonard Hartz, a slender and earnest American with a rather comically round head, came to the Constable School because it was one of three British art schools approved by the Veterans Administration under the new pruned GI Bill. He could not imagine what the VA had seen in the place. Constable, Connie to the bird-tongued, red-legged girls who composed half its student body, was at once pedantic and frivolous. The vast university museum, which, with a gesture perhaps less motherly than absent-mindedly inclusive, sheltered the school in its left wing, was primarily archaeological in interest. Upstairs, 
Room after room was packed with glass cases of Anglo-Saxon rubble. Downstairs, a remarkably complete set of plaster casts taken from classical statuary swarmed down corridors and gestured under high archways in a kind of petrified riot. This counterfeit wealth of statues, many of them still decorated with the seams of the casting process and quite swarthy with dust, was only roughly ordered beginning in the east with wasp-waisted Kuroi, whose Asiatic faces wore the first faint smile of the attic dawn, one passed through the jumbled poignance and grandeur of Greece's golden age, and ended in a neglected westerly room, where some large coarse monuments of the Roman Christian degeneracy rested their hypnotised stares in the shadows. Masterpieces lurked like spies in this mob. His first week, Leonard spent a morning and two afternoons sketching a blackened Amazon leaning, half-clad, from a dark corner, and only at the end of the second day, struck by a resemblance between his sketch and the trademark of an American pencil manufacturer, did he realise that his silent companion had been the Venus de Milo. Okay, Jill, do you want to go first now? Okay, I'm not a fan of this. I'm not a fan of the sort of peacock display, the sort of look at me, how many adjectives I can pile into sentences and break the backs of them. Look at me with my subordinate clauses. Um, I don't really like it at all. So many things that are there seem to me so unnecessarily. Unexplained, but the author, and I'm going to say he because I presume it to be a he, the bird-tongued, red-legged girls. What does that mean? What does red leg? Why have they all got red legs? Why have fifty percent of the student body got red I legs? Really, I've no idea. I really like that description, but I'll try and explain I'm sure why you do, Tom. Later. I'm sure you I'm do. I'm going to bring David in. If David recognises this, I do recognise it, and it's my favourite uh, okay. writer. So that's and I that's know fantastic. I know you like it. Well, uh, well, actually, I I so do, you have to make the case for the defence. No, well, I do like it. I mean, you know. I, I, it's John Updike, I'm just going to say. Is that all right? Yeah, yeah. You've gone early. <laughs> uh, it's Still Life, a short story by John Updike. Um, and it's very much the, John Updike's high style. So, you know, Jill doesn't like it. That is the sort of thing that, uh, if you don't like that sort of thing, you don't like. Because, uh, you know, he, it's he. I, I, I like the fact that Updike refuses plain writing, that everything is described with at least two descriptors a slender and an earnest american constable is once pedantic and frivolous the jumble poignance right or i mean it just goes on and on and everything is described but in my opinion and actually i'm not sure about bird tongue red leg that's that's a good one to point out because i was a bit confused about that one but most of the time uh what i think is that john updike his visual sense is so high that it's not for me redundant adjectiving redundant descriptors he's it is fair to say that he is a peacock writer there's nothing about this writing that is oh, yeah. understated or retiring and i'll just quickly say why i like bird tongued red legged girl i think um, i mean this is the very start of the story so there's no context to tell the reader what red legged girls is you do i think work out later that they're all wearing red stockings basically but because you get bird-tongued first, you immediately think of red-legged as the red legs of a bird. You can't help but do that. And so you have this rather strange image of them as this flock. Why are they bird-tongued? I, I mean, the, the chattering, yeah. Oh, I see. Like well, little girls, like little tiny I, birds. I, it's worse than that. 
Um, what I don't get with all these adjectives is that they're unexplained. I mean, it's at once pedantic and frivolous. Well, well he, how? How is it? I don't know. That doesn't he's tell me how it, up. it is. I think from the very first, he has earnest set against rather comically. He has pedantic set against frivolous, just sort of dare in a way, said the reader, because I think you're absolutely right that both of those words, you immediately think, well, that can't be true. They can't both be true. Well, that's not true. I mean, that, that you see, I, I think that that's one of the things about Updike is that he's very, very good at describing the world anew in ways that make you think, well, how is that plausible, right? I mean, to use the, there's an example uh, I always use, in fact. Uh, I'm going to go out of this piece now. Am I allowed to do that? Yeah, of course. Yeah. Uh, which, is, which is in Rabbit, in Rabbit Redux, when Rabbit is first told by his father-in-law that his wife, Rabbit's wife, is having an affair, uh, when most writers would talk about jealousy or anger or whatever, Rabbit feels a cold hope that all the news is not in yet, uh, which I think absolutely situates Updike where he is forgetting for a moment about his male gaze and how much he is snagged by that and all the rest of it which is he doesn't let any experience or indeed any description happen without thinking about it without complexifying it without saying what is the different way I could describe that so in terms of being pedantic and frivolous I, I think in this passage you don't absolutely know, but it does intrigue you as to how an, a, a place like the Constable School can be, as a, you know, showing all these art things, it can be extremely pedantic, it can be extremely showing you all these things and notating you all these different bits of rubble, and yet somehow yeah. not have a well, serious intent on towards the thing it. That I think picks up on pedantic and frivolous, because Anglo-Saxon rubble as a phrase is both pedantic and yeah. frivolous. It's pedantic about the period. Yeah, I the think time, so too. And then it dismisses all of that art as rubble, uh, which fits as an ocean yeah. of art. And similarly, similarly, Constable School is converted to Connie. So it starts as Constable with its echo of a great painter. And then it's turned, as it were, into one of the students studying that. So it's both, I think, pedantic and frivolous it is also comic by the way it's, it's i don't think i never think updike's that laugh out loud funny despite really liking him but he's never that funny but it is also comic uh you know of the of all the sort of points of view i think we're most ironic about leonard hartz it says that straight away uh, that because he's a slender and earnest american with a rather comically round head you do and again this is quite peacocky you do get a sense in which the narrator is very on high here rather than speaking really in league with um, the Jill, woman uh, in, in both the previous ones, that yeah. Leonard is being slightly laughed yeah. at here. I think you picked up on a sub-clause, and I think you've picked up a point where actually Updike said, as she should have said, you're doing something here doesn't work, which is the vast university museum, which with a gesture perhaps less motherly than absent-mindedly inclusive, sheltered the school in its left wing. The subclause there qualifies a verb we haven't actually reached yet, and it does seem to me it's in the wrong place. Um, I don't know whether that construction is well, doing anything. Yeah, and it's, also, again, something else that I don't quite understand what he's on about. But, I mean, my general thought was all about all the, all the subclauses was that it just... I mean, I think the good sentence in this piece is masterpieces lurked like spies in the mob. 
No doubt you two both hate it, but I like that sentence. No, no, that I really like that. talking to me. I was just going to say, we're, we're surely side, you like the that. The rest of the time, I feel he's off on his but own just say, trip and has no consideration for my enjoyment. Just say why you like that. And that, you know, writing is basically an act of communication. Why did you like that so much? Because I've underlined it too. I think it's one of the best sentences in this passage. Um, Because it said it... it it is an image that I completely grasp at once because it hasn't been confused with another 25,000 different things. It doesn't actually, let me just check, have an adjective, but it, excitingly. David? Sorry, I was going to say, Jill, was it, it is set up by the other writing. The other point about the whole piece is that the way that the constable uh, has arranged all these things is in a kind of slightly mad way. I, re- I really like uh, that um, a statue swarmed down corridors and gestured under high archways in a kind of petrified riot. I think that's a very funny idea that uh, statues, if you see loads and loads of them all standing and gesturing in different ways, might look like rather like the Doctor Who uh, statues thing, the blink edition of Doctor Who, if you know that, that they, they look like slightly in the middle of a mad gesturing riot. Now, I think that leads to masterpieces lurk like spies in the mob, because when you look at it, clearly you think, well, I don't know which ones of these I'm supposed to take any note of. Uh, and yet, if you spend time looking at it, you will find them, like you will find spies if you're looking for them very carefully in a large group of people. Yeah, I think well, I just fell yeah. upon the sentence like a sort of like a glass of water <laughs> in the desert, to be honest. Just a I'm going to stop while we're relief. ahead of the game with you, Jill, with the sentence you actually like, because uh, we're going to run out of time. Um, but thank you very much indeed. Well, thank you very much. That was great. <laughs> that was great. Thank you for having, Thank you for having you were us. Brilliant. Very enjoyable. Very Thank nice you. to meet you, very David. Very nice to meet you too, Jill. I'm sorry. I'm sorry you love us. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, sorry you don't, Jill. <laughs> okay, my thanks again to David Bedil and Jill Hornby. And yes, I know that you don't run out of time on podcasts, but. You know, I'm relatively new to this and I'd used the wrong Zoom setting so I could see that our clock was running down. We'll get it right next time when I'm joined by the novelist Linda Grant and the writer and broadcaster Satham Sangera. Remember, you can subscribe at linebyline.substack.com so you get an email with the extracts we're going to be discussing in the programme. Thanks to our producer, Ben Tullo, and the reader, Deli Siegel, and thanks to you for listening. Hope you'll join us next time. 